Apologies. You're very welcome along to Wednesday's Late Lunch here on LMFM. Deirdre Hurley with you here until half three this afternoon. I'm sitting on for the big man himself, Jerry Kelly. He's taking a few days off. But we've got a packed show for you today. We've plenty to talk about. Uh, later on in the programme, we're going to be hearing about Navin's furniture industry. Have you memories of it? Because Navin at one time was the epicentre of furniture and carpet making in Ireland. And um, Navin Carpets indeed was known throughout the world and in demand. We're going to be talking to Ken Davis, author of a new book of wood and wool, and he'll be joining us in studio uh, just after two today. Another local artist, well, locally based artist, but originally from England, Dale Collins. Um, his work is known throughout the world, an internationally renowned artist um, who started in the graffiti medium and has moved on to uh, drawings and print. And his work is um, has been shown in galleries all around the world. And he's uh, has a local uh, showing in the RDS, but he's based in County Louth and we're going to be hearing from Dale and his struggle with mental health and how art has helped him to, I suppose, take his life into recovery and how he wants to use his art as a way of um, taking the stigma out of mental health. Dale will be joining us in studio uh, just after half two today. And for those of you who are grieving and I suppose really there's not many in this world who haven't been touched by grief at some point in their life but how to live with grief and how to cope in your life with grief. Pastor Nick Sir will be joining us later. He's running a seminar. He's been running a series of seminars in County Meath um, since moving to Kells and uh, this one that he's running this week deals particularly with the topic of grief. So perhaps if you know somebody who's grieving or maybe you're grieving yourself you might like to listen in. Uh, Nick is going to give us I suppose a pathway of hope as he sees it into dealing with uh, the mental challenges of um, the stages of grief. And after three then, uh, a very f- uh, worthy fundraising drive by local school, Ballymachenny College. They're fundraising as part of a global citizenship project um, and they're going to be heading over to Uganda in the new year. So we're going to be talking to the crowd from P- um, Ballymachenny College after three today. We'll also have a chance to win passes to the ARC Cinema. They're tickets to go and see the latest Marvel. If you have any Marvel fans in the house, this is a big deal. They love to follow the latest one. So we'll be telling you how to win tickets to the ARC Cinema, a special LMFM screening. We'll find out of that after the break. But first, my first two guests. They've spent the last 30 years serving the country and their communities as members, indeed sergeants in Ungartha Siakona. Dean Kierans was stationed in Dublin and worked as a hostage negotiator before taking up the role of crime prevention officer in Meath. Tony Comiskey was also based in the city centre before moving to Beliver for his last 10 years of service. They're both now in enjoying their lives after retirement, running their own businesses. And they're joining us on the line today to talk about life after the force. So, gentlemen, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks, Deirdre. And Dean, I know you've been in here quite a few times. I know I've spoken with you in the studio. Um, you both <laughs> know no strangers to LMFM. But um, I know that you've spoken about this before, but saying that, that retirement and early retirement has been the best decision you've ever made. I suppose who would like to take the lead? Maybe Dean, yourself, you start us off as to why it's been such a good move for you. Yeah, I suppose I, <clears throat> I decided after every 12 months to make that decision, you know, because... Uh, I had done the 30 years. I had I had a great career. I enjoyed my time. But I came just to a stage where I was looking to do something different. And I suppose the opportunity rose in relation to the health and safety. And I suppose I started taking on uh, doing a few courses. And I suppose one thing led to the other. And I just ended up making the final decision to retire in February and then going into the health and safety training. And I, I've never looked back since. It's been brilliant, I have to say. 
is it is it a change? I suppose you're going from, you know, working to a roster and being answerable to somebody else to going into being self-employed. There's a bit of a difference, I suppose, in terms of lifestyle and work-life balance. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, yeah, you're definitely coming from a very, very busy, uh, you know, structured uh, day, you know, where you, where you almost know where you're going from day to day. Your roster is there. You're working to a roster. You're very accountable to, to Angarda Shikana. Uh, and once you leave that, it does take some time to adjust. But I think the difference is when you're leaving on your own accounts, you're deciding you're going to yourself, you have some plan of action to do when you retire. It makes it an awful lot easier and it makes it an awful lot more enjoyable. Uh, and OK, you'd miss an awful lot of the day-to-day banter that you'd have in there on the station. But I'm now getting that uh, with people that are meeting through training classes, the quad training, you know, the online virtual training that I'm doing there at the moment. And it's like it's fantastic. I have to say, I, I've never looked back since. Tony, for yourself, you're um, in, in a similar line of business, I suppose, in some way. Um, but tell us about your decision. And yours was a little bit, uh, a, bit a little bit a while back um, in comparison with Dean. But tell us about your decision to retire as well. And at a young age, I suppose, really, relatively. Yes, Deirdre. Uh, I finished up in uh, Angarda Sukhana in 2014. Like Dean, I had reached the age of 50 uh, a lot earlier than Dean, which he's constantly reminding me about. And uh, I had 30 years service racked up at the time. And uh, so what I, what I uh, embarked on was a slightly different path, Deirdre. I began working on the family farm after I retired. And Dean spoke there about opportunities, and uh, my opportunity came via the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which resulted in a, a business a person in the area approaching me. Uh, they were running a food, pro- food processing plant, and they wanted someone to come in and uh, design a COVID compliance plan for the plant. Uh, the disease pandemic had you know, a lot of implications for uh, companies at the time. So I started off in COVID compliance with that company and uh, I stayed there for uh, almost the full uh, course of the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And when I was doing that job then, I began to think about uh, further kind of training and development in that area. So I did a security management course. I did some adult training courses and then after uh, the COVID situation finished up, I started up my own business, uh, Assured Security Academy, teaching security at level four level uh, in static guarding and in door and event security. So that's how I arrived at the the point where I started up a, a new business venture in retirement. Mm-hmm. You both have retired, I suppose, and retired, I say in quotes, because you're both, you know, obviously moving on to something else. But do you think that many Gardaí choose to serve more than the 30 years? And if not, why not? Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of members do. It's obviously a very complex uh, point to arrive at in your life, Deirdre. It's a big decision. You have to uh, engage in planning for that decision and in the guards you get great help uh, from the authorities there's a pre-retirement course that members can go on to get maybe three days i think down there uh, and you get an awful lot of information and that information allows you to make uh i would say a strategic kind of decision look at your finances look at where you are in life and then make a decision as to whether you're going to stay or go arriving from that. How has working in the, in the Gardaí changed since you, you both graduated? Maybe Dean, you'll take this one. Um, 
you know, the, the force now, is it is it as recognisable from when you left Templemore, say? Oh, I think it's almost as if they're two different jobs, to be honest with you now. You know, like when back when we were younger, when, when both Tony and myself were working in the city, you know, we were going into the courts every day of the week, you know, having arrested somebody and looking after the cases ourselves. You were meeting other guards. You were, you were constantly out and about the whole time. There didn't seem to be as much emphasis on, on computer work and paperwork. Where you talk to the younger member in there is now where the whole role seems to have completely changed. Where now they seem to be spending, you know, if you talk to anyone, they're spending more time inside looking after paperwork and computer work and it's consuming a huge amount of their time. Which means then they're not getting out into the community, they're not meeting the local people, they're not going to the, to various causes. It just makes it far more challenging for them now compared to the freedom, I suppose, that both Tony and myself would have had back in the, back, you know, twenty five, thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you both be three different jobs nearly, you know. Mm-hmm. You both had stints in the inner city and then moved to more rural locations, I suppose. How does policing differ, you know, from your working? Some of you worked Fitzgibbon Street, Mountjoy, some of the you know inner city stations compared then to the likes of Beliver, perhaps. You know, it's a more rural location. Maybe Tony, you take that. Um, in terms of policing, what's the difference? Uh, there's a huge difference, obviously. Um, I would say that uh, rural policing, in relation to what Dean was talking about, Deirdre, has suffered the most following the austerity period. Um, when that kicked in, uh, obviously Templemore closed for training purposes. Uh, the big stations were losing a lot of manpower. Uh, they weren't being replaced because of the, the closing of Templemore. And then the implications for rural policing was that a lot of stations in rural Ireland were closed and the members were pulled into the bigger uh, towns to fill those resource, resource uh, shortages. And as a result of that, rural areas suffered greatly in terms of the policing cover. And uh, I would feel very strongly about that because one of the things about rural policing compared to city policing is that you form very strong bonds with the community you're working in. And that was especially uh, true for me in relation to Beliver and Kladaki and Kalyan, where I worked for my final 10 years, and the people there were just fantastic. Supported myself and the team that I worked with in Beliver, uh, Owen Ganley and Johnny Plunkett. And uh, when you see how the service diminishes in relation to the people that you meet every day, it really hits home to you. And uh, it, was, it was a really bad time for police. And, and I, I honestly don't think that the job has recovered from that austerity period, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Dean, would you agree with that? <clears throat> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you can see the changes. I mean, even now, and Tony would be the same, we would constantly get calls from the people that we knew when we were working, you know, looking for me advice and guidance because they can't, or they don't know any of the local guards nowadays. And that's not through the guards directly fall. It's just the changes in the job are preventing them from getting out, meeting the people, uh, doing the patrolling, you know, doing doing the simple things right, you know, which we would have done all the time as as a matter of norm on our day-to-day basis. But now, you know, they, I, I think that the, the, the restraints of in a station doing the paperwork following up, it just seems consuming so much of their time I'm missing out on this this valuable uh, interaction with the community on a day-to-day basis, which mm. is 
which is a shame really, you know. Yeah, you mentioned the computer work as part of an element of the job, but I suppose there are plenty of other challenges now. We have social media, you have protesters and the likes of some of the things where we've seen with people wearing body cams where Gardaí don't have, I suppose, likewise rights for that. And that it, those are, I suppose, modern day challenges that, that Gardaí have to face. Yeah, look, I suppose all that is, is a concern for members because everything now, every single thing you do now is either recorded, it can be highlighted, it's been reposted. <clears throat> and like, I suppose you, you, when you're out and about on a day-to-day basis, when you're, when you're in difficult situations, sometimes you are likely to maybe do or say something that, that maybe not just at that right time to be appropriate, you know. But you might have meant it in the context and sometimes things that the guards can say they do, they can be taken out of context and almost used against them down the line. So it's different because at the end of the day, the, the guards signed up to do a, a phenomenal job. And they, they are, even with all the challenges that they have at this moment in time, they are trying to do the best to do a phenomenal job. But sometimes it's the small things that can hold them back and social media and the effect that can have certainly in some members. Uh, it, it's difficult for them to deal with on, on a day-to-day basis, especially when you know if you do something, or whatever you do now, uh, whatever instance you're dealing with, there's a good chance it will be recorded and it will be posted on somebody's social media account somewhere along the way. Mm. And it never goes away. Mm. It just it just keeps on coming back time and time and time again. It just, you know, they never get deleted, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Tony, is it still a career you'd recommend if you had a son and daughter coming up and they said, I want to be a guard? Would you still say yes, go ahead, encourage them to do so? I have thought about that since I retired, Deirdre, and it's a complex answer. Um, I think it would depend on the strength of the vocation that person had. I think if they felt fully committed to a life in policing and were hell-bent on pursuing it, I certainly would not discourage them. But if it's something you're doing for want of something else or for want of opportunities in another area, I would be very slow to encourage anyone in those circumstances to join the job. And just to add in in relation to what Dean was saying, uh, Deirdre, the young uh, Gardaí who are out there now are doing an absolutely fabulous job and uh, they deserve our support and they deserve the community's support because it's a very tough environment to be policing in. And I would add that it's a very tough environment for all frontline emergency service workers at the present time. And I think they're deserving of our support and they're deserving of our criticism when they get things wrong. Without getting too political about it, um, we leave that job to Michael Reid in the mornings. But it is fair to say that the Gardaí, the morale is probably at its lowest ebb that it's been at in a long time. I mean, that's probably since blue flu days and it's probably maybe even a bit lower at the moment. What do you see as the best way forward? I know it's a complex issue, but maybe the top two factors that could solve the, the morale in the Gardaí at the minute? I think there's a kind of a bubble in the wallpaper from when Templemore was closed, Deirdre, and that three or four year vacuum of training and uh, new recruiting into the job lies kind of at the root of a lot of the, not all of the problems, but a lot of the problems that are there now. I think it's, it's there's a, a massive, massive issue for the uh, for future, this government and future governments in relation to resourcing. That's what I would say. 
Okay. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I do want to say on behalf of all the uh, people that you've served in uh, in the northeast, uh, thank you for all for all you've done for your communities, and we want to wish you the very best in your retirement. We wish you uh, great success in your new ventures, uh, Sergeants Dean Kieran and Tony Comiskey, retired uh, members of Ongar the Shiakana, and uh, we wish them all the very best in their early retirement. There is life after the force, I think, is uh, is the message today. Anyway, coming up after the break, we'll be giving you a chance to win tickets to a special screening of the latest Marvel release at Arc Cinema. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a few moments. As any Marvel fans in the house, well, LMFM and the Arc Cinema are hosting a screening of the Marvels in the Arc Cinema in Drogheda on Wednesday, November 15th. That's next Wednesday at 6.20. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, has reclaimed her identity from the tyrannical Kree and taken revenge on the supreme intelligence. However, unintended consequences see her shouldering the burden of a destabilised universe. When her duties send her to a wormhole linked to a Kree revolutionary, her powers become entangled with two other superheroes to form the Marvels. Well, that's the script. That's what it says. So if you and some friends would like to go along for free, all thanks to the Arc Cinema in Drogheda, just text or WhatsApp in the words Arc Cinema, followed by your name and location to 086 1800 658. And we've some passes to give away for you and your friends. But it's time for some music on Late Lunch today and we're choosing the best of Irish with Hello My Love by the boys. That's right, it's Westlife. Yes, you're welcome back to The Late Lunch on LMFM. Deirdre Hurley with you here today in place of Jerry Kelly. Now, for over eight decades, the town of Navan was synonymous with furniture and carpet making. What led the County Meath town to become such a hub of industry and innovation? Well, a new book is being launched of wood and wool, which looks at the early days of the sawmills right up to the 70s when Navan was home to over 50 different factories and small workshops. And joining me in studio today to talk about this is the author of the book, Ken Davis, communications consultant and CEO of Meath Enterprise. Gary O'Mara and Mead Enterprise is supporting the book. So gentlemen, you're very welcome along to Late Lunch today. And um, this is a, a wonderful publication, beautifully presented, looking back on a host of photographs. Anybody from the, the area would, would love to have a look at this. But Ken, tell us, I suppose, first off, how the idea of the book came about. As I like to kind of say, it's probably a story that was hiding in plain sight in, in ways. It was... It was kind of there. It was it was obvious, but the the light bulb moment for me kind of came during a conversation with with Gary um, in Meath Enterprise um, back earlier this year, when I, I do some consultancy work around PR and, and content writing for Meath Enterprise, and we were we were chatting about different things that were coming up, and um, sort of with a view towards the the twenty fifth anniversary of Meath Enterprise, which is this year, and Gary mentioned the possibility of maybe doing a book on me, the Enterprise Centre. Um, and the minute he kind of said it, my sort of, it was like a chain reaction going off my head kind of thing. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, we can do a book on the Enterprise Centre, um, but there's a whole backstory to it that, that's never been told, and that's the Navin furniture industry, because the Enterprise Centre in Navin was the original Navin Exhibition Centre that was built to showcase um, the the products of the town's factories, the furniture factories and the carpet factories. So I suppose that's where the, the idea originated. And in fairness to, to Gary and the board at Meath Enterprise, they pretty much gave me the, the green light to go ahead and research it. And um, it's, it was an 18-month project started in April, May, March, April last year and has just 
uh, concluded now in the last few weeks with it's a feat of work when you look at the the length of time that it spans that what you've been looking at from the early 1900s right up I suppose till modern times really essentially how did how I suppose take us back to the to the seeds of of the innovation in Navin the, the early 1900s how did it all begin sawmills really or, or was that the beginning of it yeah I mean Navin's a town that um, had a lot of old mills on both the rivers the Blackwater and, and the Boyne and by the sort of late 1800s they would have all been different flour mills distilleries flax mills that kind of thing and um, by the late 1800s they had kind of fallen into disuse and um, a man called James McCann, who was a nationalist MP from County Louth, actually, from Shannon Rock, um, bought up uh, some land in, in Navan, uh, including uh, the mill that was known as Athlumni Mill on the ramparts, and he converted that into a woodworking enterprise uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, he actually died f- just a few years later, uh, but his family kept his vision going, I suppose, and... Um, they converted it from the Atlumni sawmill into the Navan sawmills and furniture factory. And that, in November 1906, was, was the start of, of furniture making in, in Navan. And then it, it went through various iterations, I suppose. Um, down the years, the, the McCann family had it until 1912. And they made different things. They made hard furniture, uh, dining room suites, library suites, that kind of stuff. Quite good quality. And sold it locally uh, as well in, as well as in Dublin. And in 1912, um, the Goodall brothers from High Wycombe in, in the UK in Britain uh, came over. And that's the, the home of, of chair making, uh, the home of furniture really in England. And they had it for six years. So they brought a whole new skill set to, to Navin at that time. But they were only there for six years. Um, in 1918, then a man called Daniel Aylesbury, who had a the Eden Derry timber mills in in County Offaly took it over and he had it until 1933. So there was sort of three different iterations of of, of the factory at that stage. And um, a lot of guys would have gone through there, would have learned their trade there. Um, by the time the factory burned down in 1933, um, there, there were already a number of ex-Aylesbury guys who had started their own businesses. Um, people like John Hogg, whose business ultimately became Cranock in the 1960s. Um, Joshua Elliott, who had uh, Elliott Sawmills in, in Navan. It was originally Mortimer Sawmills. And probably the, the most pivotal figure of all was William Bard Walsh, um, probably the most famous furniture maker in, in Navan, who um, sort of grew up dirt poor in, in Navan in, in the early 1900s, um, went off to fight in, in the Great War, joined the British Army for uh, for no other reason other than there was, it was better wages uh, than he was earning as a labourer. Um, fought in at the Somme and Ypres and uh, came back, was demobbed in 1918, um, came back to Navan, started, joined the staff of Aylesbury's furniture factory and learned to trade there as a, a chairmaker. And um, within a number of years after... You know, gaining some experience there, he started out on his own in around 1928. And, you know, within, he started off making chairs in his brother's backyard, basically, on Flower Hill. And within f- three years, I think, he had about 40 people working for him. A year later, he had 60. Three year, two years later, he had 135. Um, so, What was the, I suppose, what, 
why were why were they so successful? What was it that Navin had, I suppose, that you know that made it unique that way? Um, there's a number of reasons, I suppose. Um, there was uh, an abundance of hardwood forests around Navin, so, so there was a lot of the raw material to start with. There was a tradition of sawmilling in the town as well. There was a lot, lots of little sawmills, but probably the most important factor is the fact that there were there was a ready pool of labour, particularly after Aylesbury's burned down in 1933. That sort of threw 120 men out of work. And their availability really turbocharged the likes of William Walsh's um, business. So um, he had, you know, the fact that he was able to call on so many guys to work for him, obviously business followed. So um, uh, one begat the other kind of thing. but I mean, he, he was an extraordinary guy uh, and he, he does fill a large part in, in the book. I mean, I, I, I didn't intend to, but I ended up uh, devoting a whole chapter to him. You know, it wasn't my intention at the start, but he's just such a fascinating character. And he was the linchpin around which everything kind of functioned from certainly the late 20s, early 30s onwards. You know, I mean, he, he, he was exhibiting his chairs at the New York World's Fair in 1939. I mean, it was extraordinary stuff, really, you know. And an innovator as much as a businessman? Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think you, 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 you had to be and I think there is a theme of innovation running through the book. And certainly when Gary and myself started talking about it, um, you know, uh, the one stipulation for me was to look at the story through the lens of enterprise and, and innovation. And there's plenty of examples of it, um, certainly in the early days. Um, and, you know, those Bard Walsh, I suppose, had always the biggest factory, the biggest workforce. He put so many young men through his his hands in terms of training them um, as apprentices. And a lot of those guys then went on and um, became furniture factory owners themselves in, in the, well, probably the 60s, I suppose, really, you know. So, um, so the book kind of looks at how, you know, how it went from one factory in 1906 to 50 in the late 1970s, uh, 50 factories and workshops. They weren't all big factories. There, there were some smaller operations as well, quite a few smaller operations, but it's... Um, Can you tell me a little bit about then, I suppose, I don't want to go from furniture making, but th- there was no tradition of making carpets in Navin, yet Navin still to this day is synonymous with Navin carpets. It's, it's, it's you know, it's automatically recognisable as a, as a name, or as a, tra- as a trademark. Why was that and where did it come from? Yeah, another very interesting story. As you say, absolutely no tradition of, of carpet making um, in the town. Essentially, it began with one man, a man called Clement Newsom, uh, who was uh, a British army officer, ended up in Ireland marrying um, a war widow. And through a circuitous route, they ended up living uh, at Bow Park, just outside Navan, on a, um, on a property called Ashfield, which the Land Commission had, had given them. Um, in place of the property they were living in in, in County Mayo, which had been ransacked. Um, so he didn't believe that he could make a living from the income from the farm there. So he was casting around for, for different ideas and he wanted to start a nail fac- nail manufacturing f- uh, facility at, at, at Bow Park. And at that time, the government in Ireland were, um, they were giving out contracts for... Um, uh, for for different industries, they were trying 
the de Valera Lamas government at the time were, were trying to build an industrial base in, in Ireland at the time. So they were giving out contracts for various sectors. So he went to them with this idea for a nail manufacturing facility. Um, they came back and said, sorry, uh, that option has already been taken up. So you can make ladies' handbags or you can make carpets. So um, he was a a very determined man by the sounds of it. And um, he decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make carpets, even though he knew absolutely nothing about it. So he went over to Scotland to the Templeton Carpet Factory in Glasgow, uh, which at that time was the foremost um, carpet manufacturing factory in probably in Northern Europe, certainly in the UK. They would have done carpets for all the royal coronations, um, the House of Commons, the White House in Washington, the White Star Lines like Titanic, all this little very, very high-end stuff. So over there he met a guy called Robert McLean, <coughs> who was a management accountant, and together they convinced somehow the board of this huge um, industry to back their idea of building a carpet factory in a small Irish rural town in 1937. So I don't know how they did it, but they did. And um, work began in 1937 on the Kells Road, and it was opened in... 1938, September 1938, Sean Lamas opened it and um, it almost it almost didn't make it past 1940 um, because the obviously it wasn't a great time to be starting a business at that time. Obviously, Europe was had a year later. Europe was at war, um, and the main factory in Glasgow was put to use for for the war effort. Um, it became Britain's biggest laundry they they were actually making or cleaning and washing all the ships blankets and hammocks that were coming in from all the big the massive troop convoys coming into the Clyde uh, so the Glasgow factory passed on all its work to the Navin factory for the first year kind of things so they were actually quite busy in 1939 early early months of 1940 um, but then Templeton's decided that they were going to close the Navin factory. Uh, they were obviously the country was at war, they were under aerial bombardment, all this kind of stuff so um, so Newsom and McLean were faced with the prospect of their dream dying before it had even got off the ground so again they used their persuasive powers, they brought in uh, an outside investor, Professor Jack A. Nicholson who was the head of the veterinary faculty in TCD as, a, as an investor and they persuaded the Templeton's board to sell their interest in the business to them so once that happened, uh, the name changed from Templeton Carpets Limited to Navin Carpets Limited, although it formally didn't happen until about 1946 after the war. And after that, the rest is history kind of thing. They, you know, they, uh, they, they started making carpets in, in ever greater numbers until, you know, they, you know, started off obviously supplying the domestic market, then branched into the UK in the early 1960s. The UK became a huge market for them then. Um, Captain Newsom had died at that stage. There was a, a man called Alan Mallinson was the managing director at that stage, a Yorkshire man. He would have known the UK market quite well, so he was very comfortable moving in there. And after the after they'd conquered the UK, they moved into Europe, uh, Germany, France, France Netherlands. The, there is a link between Navin Carpets and the Mount Charles in Slane, is there? Or am I right about that? Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, Clement Newsom. Uh, when he married Eileen Usher Burke, who, who was the lady, uh, the war widow uh, from County Mayo that he he, he married um, in the 1920s, um, 
Eileen already had two daughters, um, but she had another daughter with Clement, uh, in, who was also Eileen. And Eileen Newsome, Wren Newsome, went on to marry Frederick Cunningham of Slane Castle. And their firstborn child is Henry Man Charles. So, yeah. The links the continue. Yeah. Gary, it's, it's no wonder that you wanted to get behind this project. It's so interesting, isn't it? There's such a fabric of different stories and a tapestry for, I suppose, no pun intended. But tell us about the Me the Enterprise role in, in this book and why you so strongly support it. So a lot of what Mead Enterprise do, it is all about kind of regional development, supporting companies. So we have a lot of companies in our different hubs in Avon and Kells. Um, we run schools programs, entrepreneurship programs, the Student Enterprise Challenge, semi-finals are next week and finals at the end of the month for second level schools all across the county. Um, we're working with universities and programs to kind of upskill graduates and get them ready for entrepreneurship, starting their own business or working within SMEs. So regional development is really kind of at the heart of what we're all about, why we exist. The story of the book, like Ken said, when we had the conversation, we wanted to write something, we wanted to do something. I was actually looking at a national project at the time and we got talking about the local project because the Enterprise Centre, uh, which is you know, an 86,000 square foot facility in Navan, like it was 40,000 square foot when it was built in 1980 as the exhibition centre. And that was the link. So if we're celebrating 25 years, it made sense to celebrate it in Navan, which we will do next Thursday, um, celebrate that 20-year birthday. But in order to help people understand what it is we do and why we do it and how important it is, especially in rural Ireland nowadays, uh, writing the book about the history of why the Enterprise Centre or the Exhibition Centre was actually built just seemed to make perfect sense Uh, and it was a great opportunity for us I suppose to tell the story and and the history of innovation and entrepreneurship over the past hundred years in a town uh, in Navan in a county where we're so kind of passionate and, and, and so committed to building the next wave of entrepreneurs and factories, maybe it's in foods, maybe it's in ag tech and food tech and all the other things that we're looking at. That's what I wanted to ask you, I suppose, when we're looking back at, um, you know, industrial, the industrial period and there's different industries that, you know, I mean, I suppose nowadays we find in maybe other parts of the world, but where's the future for industry? I suppose, are those innovative skills, you know, still there among people in Navan and in the greater, the greater Meath area? Yeah, look, um, I suppose when you look back with the furniture, it's, it's quite inspirational. You know, back in the 60s and the 70s, like people from all over the world were traveling to, the, to, to Navan for the trade fairs. So Navan always ha- has had a long history of kind of globalization or global connectedness or whatever, reaching out to the world and, and selling its wares. So what we're looking at now, um, you know, we support all different types of businesses and we'd have all different types of companies within our hubs. But one of our main projects is the Bind Valley Food Innovation District. So we're kind of we're well on our way to building food hubs and digital innovation, smart agri hubs and connecting ourselves into the global networks that already exist with a with an ambition to become the Silicon Valley of food where Irish companies can go through the Bind Valley as a gateway to the rest of the world when they're looking for market access into places like China and Africa and the US. And they're the kind of links that we're trying to build. Um, you know, building food tech and ag tech companies, you know, utilising AI and digitisation. These are the challenges. You know, that's we, we, we've, we've labs and spaces and lots of things that we use to try and upskill companies and, and help entrepreneurs kind of be successful at what they do at affordable prices and everything else with shared services and access to government and corporates. So there's an awful lot that we do. But to come back to the book, 
It is all about entrepreneurship. It is about innovation. And does Navin certainly has a history of it? You know, is it still rampant there, you know, across Navin? It is if we're celebrating it and we're promoting it and we're in the schools, which the local authority and the local enterprise office and everybody is. So we want it to be. And entrepreneurship isn't even just about people starting companies. It's about people working within existing companies and just being creative and being innovative and having an entrepreneurial mindset where they're not afraid to take risks and they want to get out there and kind of take chances, help other people succeed and connect with the world. And that's what we're trying to do again. It's called Of Wood and Wool and it's going to be launched next Thursday. Am I right, Ken, in saying that? Yeah, next Thursday in the Navin Enterprise Centre on the terminal. At 7 o'clock and if anybody who's been listening is interested in maybe coming along or learning more, they can email events at meadenterprise.ie. And we'll be back on I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that have memories. As soon as I mentioned it, I mentioned to my husband about, uh, you know, we were talking about the different things. He said, oh, the Crown Oak Furniture. I remember that going into the, you know, there are there are those associations with people down through the years of the different industries. And, and so I suppose it's of a different time. But still, we see plenty of furniture companies still in existence. I know people that come from Dublin still see Navin as a, as a destination for those industries. A little bit less probably than back in its heyday, but it's still there. Yeah, I mean, the... There's probably a perception out there that furniture manufacturing is 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 finished in Navan. It, you know, on a large scale in comparison to where it was in the late seventies, early eighties. Yes, it, it is gone, but there are still companies manufacturing in in Navan in Beachmead Industrial Estate. There are at least three or four I can think of off the top of my head. Um, other places have turned to become more wholesalers and retailers. Um, but furniture is still very much a bedrock of um, of that that part of Navan, and there are you know umpteen other uh, small businesses who are still making furniture. So the legacy lives on really uh, throughout the town and, and on the outskirts of of Navan. Well, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us today. Of wood and wool, Ken Davis and Gary O'Mara from Meath Enterprise wish you the very best of, the lo- of luck with it. I'm sure there's plenty of people in Navan and the hinterland that will be interested in having a look back this. It's a fantastic, a beautiful hardback uh, book of 260 pages and beautiful photographs and everything. So anyway, Louise is telling me to wrap it up. I've gone over the, over the time, but it's lovely to talk to you both Gary and Ken. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Fades out nicely, that one. Build me up buttercup. Uh, an absolute classic. Now, Louise Walsh is an absolute mine of information. Anything that is Navin related, well, actually anything really in Louth, Meath, Cavan, Monaghan, anywhere at all. She's always picking out those little bits. But she said the Bard Walsh, who um, Ken was mentioning, was uh, so in- influential in terms of the uh, furniture industry or the uh, in, in Navin. His granddaughter was Ashling Walsh, who is a producer of Song for a Raggy Boy and won BAFTAs and is very successful in her field of film. So there you go. There's a little bit of Navin information. Always useful for an old quiz or something like that. Thanks, Louise. Now, would you like the chance to win some great prizes each week from now until... Christmas, are we mentioning that word? Christmas, including gift vouchers, a year of free cinema, a PlayStation 5 or even a holiday worth €3,000. Well, every time you spend €30 or more across any of the shops in Scotch Hall, you'll have the opportunity to enter Santa's Shop and Snap Draw. This week's prize is €400 worth of goodies from Be Perfect Cosmetics and a glam session with a makeup artist of your choice in store and a €150 voucher for the Deviate Fashion Store. All you have to do is upload a picture of your receipt using Scotch Hall's QR code 
entry form and stay tuned to LMFM to see if you're one of the lucky winners. And we'll be announcing our ARC Cinema competition winners later on in the show. Also coming up um, after the break, we're going to be talking to locally based artist Dale Collins on his struggles with mental health and how art helped him to overcome them. We'll also be talking to Pastor Nick Serb on the stages of grief. And after three, a local school project that's taking its wings and heading off to Uganda in the new year. Now, from graffiti to galleries around the world, my next guest is an internationally renowned artist who's based here in County Loud. And while his bold, expressive paintings and drawings are remarkable, his backstory is even more so. I'm delighted to be joined here live in studio today with Dale Collins on today's Late Lunch. Dale, you're very welcome to the programme. Well, thanks for having me. As I mentioned, you're not from Loud originally. Tell us a little bit about where you are from, uh, Dale. Well, I'm from the south of uh, Bath and Bristol area, UK. Uh, that's where I grew up. I grew up on the sort of rough council estates, um, which sort of introduced me to um, quite a life, as you can imagine, sometimes. Um, it was, you know, quite hard going at times and things. And um, I enjoyed growing up in, in the area, to be honest. It, it was great. And I come from a very well secured family and things um, who, lo- you know, love me and everything um, but I just sort of find my sort of lifestyle I was always crying out for something more really um, so by the time I got to secondary school I started graffiti art okay and um, yeah, it all went from there really and, and was it just something I suppose people have this idea of graffiti art of tags but actually there is a really and we see it here in in Drogheda under the bridge there's a big history or a kind of culture of graffiti art here in Louth but was it the art end of things of it or was it like express creative expression or what was it about graffiti that appealed to you um you know back then I think this was around 1986 you know it was a long time ago now um it wasn't sort of popular like street eyes these days and things um i just remember remember traveling on the train into london paddington and sort of seeing all the illegal graffiti and things and to to be honest with you i i, I went into a local um um stationers and I, I picked up a little sketch pad and pen and i couldn't stop drawing on the way back on the train it, it just felt you know just something attached to me straight away and a funny little story is as soon as i you know got back to school I, I was really bad at art and things i went to see my my teacher at the time and i said look i'm brilliant at graffiti art and things and i was so into it and things and within a year I found out I got arrested for, you know, the stuff that was going on around town. And I know for a fact that there was a school teacher that dobbed me into the police. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me like an inspirational story of how the teacher recognised your talent. and you know, <laughs> no. But that was my first sort of learning yeah. curve of, you know, the illegal sort of side of it and things. But, you know, I would class myself as an, an expressive painter, mm-hmm. not a, an illegal graffiti artist. No, not mm. at all. Growing up or... At what stage in in your life can you pinpoint? Because I know you've spoken about this before about how you use your art and, and I suppose to beat this stigma about mental health. But where did your mental health issues or struggles begin with Dale? Well, you know, the first time that I recognised I had a mental health problem, I was walking into town and just something happened in in, in my brain. I'd never witnessed before. I must have been sort of 17, 16, 17 and things. And, you know, I, I, I went straight to the doctors and I walked into the doctors without any appointment. I said, I'm going mad. You know, I am actually going mad. And it was like, you know, maybe described as, say, flashbacks or something. But that was the first time that I have sort of recognised that, you know, I had a problem and it never went away. It never went away. And did you get treatment for it or it was... Well... 
what happened was, you know, to, to go on further for that, I didn't take any treatment, you know, whatsoever at that time. Um, I, I, I carried on with the graffiti, but I felt unwell a lot of the time when I was doing it. Um, so I'd be in Bristol painting the walls and I'd be expressive statements on the walls like you know from the young age the cracks have started to appear and things like that and I felt like the walls were quite sacred really do you know what I mean of what I was doing and things mm -hmm. and I wrote something on the wall saying I want to create something that is indescribable and I think that was the catalyst to where we're probably going to go on to next if I ended up in a mental hospital mm -hmm. um, because um, I, the, the piece was about moon craters Luna and all stuff like that and I felt so sort of attached to you know what I was doing and we was going down to Run to the Sun, which is a, an event in Newquay, and I was listening to the master plan by Oasis on the ra radio, and it was saying, we're all part of the master plan, and I didn't come home. I ended up in hospital. So that's, you know, where things started getting a little bit heavy with mental health mm -hmm. and truly mentally honest. Yeah, and you found yourself in, in, in an asylum. Uh, I did, yeah. 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 I did. It was um, a very interesting time. I felt whilst I was in the asylum... You know, I, I find myself quite lucky to go through such an experience, to be honest, because really? I felt like, you know, all my life was mapped out in front of me. And from the things that I witnessed in there, from what I was going through, it's, you know, when I got out of it and got myself well, things started becoming true. And I ended up becoming quite a famous artist. Mm. And that began, those ideas formed when you were in there, I suppose. Is that, would you describe that as your lowest ebb being sectioned and going in there? Um, I honestly feel that, you know, going to a dark place like that, which was actually, like I say, very enlightening. Um, in what way? I felt like I was in a in a major movie <laughs> in, a, in Hollywood and things and how to get out of this place and things. You know, it's a very interesting concept that I was going through. So I think dealing with the trauma of that afterwards was the biggie. Okay. You know, it took me seven years to recover. I was on antipsychotic medication. I'd go against what, four stones in weight, 16 stones. Um, I, I tried to go to college. I went to college and I, I painted this piece and I had a nervous breakdown. And I spent what, le uh, 13 weeks in bed and I lost my 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 course and it was just really sad so it was like ebb and flow it was like everything that I was trying to do something just happened to do with mental health and it stopped it mm. you know and does does it affect your creative process then when you're going through one of these dark periods you know can you create or are you able to um you know I've always used art as a rehabilitation tool you know it, it really has when I'm in my darkest places and to be fair with you it's nothing like it used to be you know, I think once you go, go through trauma, I, I think it's an ongoing, you know, um, recovery period that it would probably be for the rest of my life at the end of the day. But generally, I'm very happy, okay. you know, and I just have my moments. I think, you know, people around me, they see me sort of daydreaming away and things sometimes and things. I'm just an artist and that's that's it, an end, end of it, really. But, you know, I, I, I'm thankful that I've been through mental health Um and yeah do you yeah. find it something i suppose not many people who have been through you know maybe using sectioned or in ireland if you've been to st pat's people don't really openly talk about that well this is where what i was saying about being inside the hospital it was my duty from what i was seeing inside of myself to actually talk about it to be able to get myself out the other end so i did a show wars of wounds coventry 2014 and uh, that was 
I felt that the whole concept of that show was actually to put on a show about them experiences. We sold out the show on the opening night, basically, and things, you know. Mm. I won't talk figures, obviously, but, you know, it was a lot of big works. And I felt as soon as that show had finished, I had done my duty with, you know, what the problems were, was in the past. I could move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something inside of me that wanted to carry on working in mental health. And I'd worked with young children. We did a show in Edinburgh, Scotland in 2016. Um, and I was working workshops with mixed media art, with, you know, young children with trauma, ADHD, you know, all these sort of titles and things. And we put on a magnificent show again. And it's just something that I feel that I've always enjoyed doing, you know, having a voice and giving something back. Um, so I think one thing that, how do I explain this, is hard, you know, when you've admitted you've had mental health problems, um, and you know things are not working out around you and things like you can always be blamed you know that you've got the normal person then the one with mental health and if you're not maybe getting on with someone one day and things it's just like oh it's him he's got a mental health problem and things like and you know that can be quite damaging and I've had a lot of that in the past you know and I find that's the hardest thing to deal with with you know the process of what I tried to do to give back to society is you know the opposite to that you know mm. you've been through when you came to Ireland you've been through the mill I suppose really you've experienced homelessness you've had to deal with debt and and your art actually helped you get out of that that's I th- right yeah can you tell me about the difference I suppose um, in, in in your paintings and your drawings in doing it to making a living whereas to a point now where you're actually working and you do your art I suppose there's not that uh, I suppose need to create to make money you're creating for other reasons yeah, well, I just, you know, I, I come to Drada and I, I just did a short course at the Drada Institute of, um, uh, College, you know, in culinary arts and things. I wanted to learn something new. Um, and, you know, I got to a point with art and things that, you know, because of things that maybe have happened when I was in Ireland about becoming homeless and, you know, it wasn't easy. Um, you know, I wanted to learn something new and do something new to balance my life a little bit, you know. So I I did that and I I did a part-time chef at the weekends um, and I've relaxed a lot more with art and I think I'm producing my best work because of it now and I think people will see that at the RDS this coming weekend. Yes, and speaking of the RDS, um, your work will be showcased as part of the Art Source. It's Ireland's premier art fair at the RDS this weekend from November 10th to 12th. But um, I suppose, what is it about creating, Dale, that gives your head peace? Um, I just love building. When I work, I'm not really a conventional painter. I was trained in oils. I've been to university in Southern California, Long Beach, Los Angeles. I've had a BA Fine Art from Coventry University. Um, And I was just taught to, you know, um, art as a process a lot more and things. So I build paintings. It's a bit like, you know, I've worked in a, um, a local... Uh, curry house and things you know for for some work experience and things for to do the course you know two years ago and it's like we build curries and I build paintings you know and I, it's just a general bit layering layering a paint that actually speaks to me you know when I'm, I'm working on it and things you have a relationship with the canvas basically it's a bit like a self-portrait you know you're painting your own self-portrait with you you know your words and messages within the work um, and as you're building it it's, it's just like you sort of you know hate it sometimes then you enjoy it and then you hate it and it's just like it's it's a very interesting way of working that's why sometimes it can be quite stressful you know cathartic even 
Sorry? mean, cathartic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you would like to know more about Dale's work, um, I know I mentioned artsource.ie, but you have your own uh, vermingraffiti.com is your own website. So you That's can right, yeah. buy your own, buy pieces or, or just even view your work. Well, we've got a few prints available, you know, coming up. And, uh, you know, I tried to make my art accessible for everybody and things. We've got the higher end prices and we've got the small pieces for people just to put on the walls. And, you know, we've got some new little uh, mini wounds, I call them at the moment, little A5 pieces and things. And they're beautiful little things, you know, hand-stitched and everything. And we will be selling them off our website this weekend to coincide with the RDS show, yes. Okay, well, brilliant. Well, we wish you the very best of luck. And I've also noticed that your artwork on beer cans. Yes, (laughs) um, whilst I was living in County Sligo, uh, Lockyell Brewery uh, approached me um, about doing some some beer cans and I've done what five or six editions and I've actually got vermin on a beer can and things and they are sold throughout you know Europe and America it's brilliant brilliant I suppose it's a, it's an unusual way to see your work well I just wanted to, to say thank you so much for joining us Dale today and for telling us your story and vermingraffiti.com if you want to see more about Dale's story and his message about mental health and art and how it can I suppose help to break down that stigma or if you want to go along artsource.ie this weekend in the RDS to see the work live Dale Collins thanks very much for joining and us thank on you Yes, thanks for choosing Local and listening to LMFM. You're with the Late Lunch on LMFM with Deirdre Hurley today, uh, standing in for Jerry Kelly. Now, the competition winners, those who were lucky enough to win passes to go along with some friends to the Arc Cinema in Drogheda. It's next uh, Wednesday, November 15th, a special screening, LMFM and the Arc Cinema hosting a screening of The Marvels. And our winners today are Aidan Byrne, Clodagh Carroll and Sinead O'Brien. So well done to the three of you. We'll be in touch to let you know uh, who you'll be able to bring along to the cinema to see that special screening of the new Marvels movie. Now it's time for our top five countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... Yes, well, this band played a pivotal role in bringing new wave into the pop mainstream. They've got roots in reggae, they flirted with punk, they also dabbled in jazz and world beat, and it gave them a distinctive sound, which made them one of the most commercially successful groups of the late 70s and early 80s. Who am I talking about? Their lead singer is a bit of a dish as well. And they still have 20, 27 million listeners on Spotify every month. They are... The police. And this is Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Number three, 1981. You're listening to The Late Lunch on LMFM. Now, students from Ballymackenny College in Drogheda are heading to Uganda next May as part of a year-long global citizenship programme with Nurture Africa, an Irish development charity. And joining me on the line this afternoon is Peter Kermath, who's the caretaker in Ballymackenny College. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about this project and the fundraising efforts at the school. Peter, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Deirdre. Thanks for having us. Why is it important for our young people to understand what it means to be a global citizen, do you think? Well, we hopefully that they um, they will see a different side of the world, different than what they're used to, at least, and see how other families and communities live and uh, uh, how easy they have it and how hard other people have it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's been a year-long program now. It's it's not just simply you're going off for a couple of weeks. There's a, there's a whole learning process about it. And what are the sort of themes that you've been exploring now through this project? 
Well, they um, they have to learn what well, they're going to learn about the social and environmental aspects and economic actions that are taken by the individuals and communities over in Uganda. Now, the charity that we're working with, the Irish charity Nature Nurture Africa, they do a lot of work and they have been doing it for a long time. So they're well versed in in that um, country doing that work, mm-hmm. and they they're very experienced doing it. I suppose decades ago, development work used to be focused very much on aid. But nowadays, this focus has moved towards self-empowerment. And that's, I suppose, a lot of the basis of what Nurture Africa do is empowering communities and working with communities rather than, I suppose, sending aid to communities, which I suppose defeats a purpose in a way. Yeah, uh, Nurture Africa have been uh, uh, looking at um, how they can make the uh, communities self-reliant and uh, making sure that they have their health resources and education uh, and maybe and doing some income generation projects as well. What are the biggest issues facing communities in Uganda at the moment? Is poverty really still to the fore? It is. It is, absolutely. Um, we're, uh, we're eager to send the students over to look at this and how they're overcoming this poverty at the moment. It's a, it is a good um, opportunity for the students here to see this and see if they can help. They might take um, roles in future in uh, aid workers and stuff like that. So it's, it is a good opportunity for students to do this. I suppose some of the the biggest issues facing the the entire planet at the moment, but one which impacts um, the global south more so than uh, the global north, um, is the issue of climate change. Is that something you're going to be looking at? We will be looking at that, yes. Um, it is uh, very much on the forefront of our journey over there. But uh, it, as well as that, you know, we have... Um, we're going to go to the Irish Embassy in Kampala and we're going to meet the local families. And this whole um, uh, charity started years ago with the HIV pandemic and uh, uh, they've just moved on to actually uh, helping other communities in the region. So as part of this programme, your students have to do a bit of fundraising themselves, don't they, to cover the cost of what they're doing. So tell us some of the fundraising um, efforts that you've been undertaking, Peter. Well, we've already had a couple of car washes at the school, um, which we raised a, a decent amount of money for. The kids really got behind that now. Now, it was a good day. I was there on two of them and uh, it was cold the last one, now, I have to say. so, And everyone got wet. But the cars got cleaned, which was the main thing. And we made we made a lot of money. So we were well pleased with that. Good stuff. Um, and you've plenty of other things coming up. Tell us about some of the things coming up in the next few months, uh, Peter. Yeah, so uh, at the moment we have on um, the school's I Donate page, uh, we have a Christmas raffle and there's a £1,200 or €1,200 Euro voucher for Centre Park, which can be used and only... Um, part of the park and then in January we're thinking of doing another raffle for a sports uh, events where there's a couple of Man United versus Liverpool tickets and uh, a 300 euro flight voucher in, included in that um, there's a there's a 5k run going to be organised for the community in April we're going to have some quiz nights 
And uh, hopefully in December, at the beginning of December, we're going to try and do a small sort of carol gig on the steps of St. Peter's Church in West Street. It sounds fantastic and plenty uh, plenty there. If our listeners are listening today and they'd like to help and maybe they're not directly linked with Bally McKenney, they go on to the I Donate page. Is that how, how best to do it? Yes, that's it. The Bally McKenney College I Donate page and they can... We're really looking for any sponsors, any fundraising um, ideas and money. We're just looking for the money to roll in. Well, hopefully you'll find some generous uh, donors listening today. What are the kind of um, practical things that you have to prepare for now, Peter? Heading out to Uganda, are we talking about you have to get, I suppose, injections? You're going to have to probably think about language. Uh, In what practical ways are the students getting ready for the big trip? Yes, there, there will be injections and, I mean, we have to be careful. Obviously, we're looking after 20-odd students and uh, there's uh, vaccinations for yellow fever and for malaria and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and they, there's there's cultural stuff as well. Um, um, we, we can't, they, we have to dress uh, um, properly. Uh, like, lads have to wear collared shirts and uh, long trousers, long sleeves. Um, and the girls have, have to do the same, really. You know, it's, it's a different way of life and it, it, the kids will, will really have their eyes open. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's absolutely no better way to learn than to go and be immersed in a community. Um, Peter, we wish you all the best. I believe, actually, and I follow, um, I'm quite a big fan of Gaelic games, but I know, actually, hurling is making a big, um, is, is, has a big revival in Uganda. There's, there's plenty of hurling clubs. There's a, look, look out for them. There's a hurling club in Kampala. I'm pretty sure they're getting young people out there learning um, the sport of hurling. But we wish you all the very best. So anybody listening today, if you'd like to help out Ballymakenny College and their students, their team of students heading out to Uganda with Nurture Africa their I Donate page Bally McKenney I'm sure you'll find the details there Peter we wish you all the best safe travels in Uganda Thank you Dave thanks for having us on Thank Not you at all much. and best of luck with your fundraising efforts fantastic um, opportunity for their students there in Bally McKenney heading out to Uganda in May and that's our lot on Late Lunch today before I go I want to say a big thank you to our producer today Louise Walsh who's the other side of the screen and she's doing all that work in the background I know what it's like Louise being in there so thank you very much uh, stay tuned Eddie Caffrey is next on The Drive and I'll be back with you from tomorrow at half past one enjoy your afternoon Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headaches, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.